I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones and today I'm talking to William Davis who teaches politics at Goldsmith and whose most recent book is Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World. He's a regular contributor to the LRB and he has a piece in the current issue about the new political polarisation and how it's come about that we have a politics that reduces to a base distinction between friend and enemy where the distinction itself is what counts, not whatever fuels or justifies it. Hello, Will. Thank you for joining me. Hello. And the idea of a politics that reduces to a friend-enemy distinction is associated, as you say, with the, the Nazi philosopher and jurist Carl Schmitt. You begin your piece with Schmitt and the idea he developed in the late 1920s that public engagement with power should be limited to expressing consent or disapproval simply by calling out. Public opinion, he thought, is the modern type of acclamation. And that's a very shriveled form of democracy, but it sometimes seems as if it's the form of democracy that we currently have. So the question, I suppose, is how is it that Schmidt's model has come to pass? So that's how we got here. Well, I think, I mean, Schmidt was also a a leading critic of parliamentary liberal democracy and of the failures of the Weimar uh, Republic that he was in many ways reacting against in in the late 1920s. And I think that that passage uh, the, of, of Schmidt's writing that I talk about in the in the piece, and which is the uh, inspiration for the piece, in that he also talks about how a people cannot be represented. It is a, a critique of the idea that a, a demos, a, a people, can be represented by parliamentarians, by political parties, by people gathered together in in a parliament acting as we now understand in, in, a, in a liberal democracy as, as professional politicians. And Schmidt was saying that actually, no, a, a people can be present uh, in the form of a type of crowd or an audience, but that they can't be represented, that uh, this is a, a critique of the idea of, of, of representational democracy, which is our standard model of democracy in in the West today. And in some sense, I suppose, what is often referred to as populism, and which is manifest in in, in a political uprising such as Brexit, is an example of the sort of politics that someone like Schmidt was, was celebrating and proposing, because it is a type of politics which takes aim quite directly at the idea of a set of elites gathered together in public institutions, whether that be in the, in the institutions of, of, of parliament or the institutions of the media or of, of, of universities or of the judiciary for that matter, claiming to act on behalf of everybody else. Because what Brexit, I think, was, uh, was about as a, as, a, as a political event or the Brexit referendum as, as an event, and what someone like Boris Johnson draws so much energy from is precisely the idea that the people who claim to represent uh, the, the, the public, claim to act on behalf of the public, are not really doing so, and they're actually only acting on behalf of themselves. And I think that the politics of the last four or five years, which have been so often summed up as populism, there is a kind of Schmittian dimension to it because it is uh, one of the most disruptive and in some ways quite dangerous phenomena within liberal democracies over that period has been the, the mobilisation of, of political movements which, which take aim against representative institutions. And that a referendum, as you say, gives, it gives people a chance to say a simple yes or no. But of course, one of the problems with the Brexit referendum is that a lot of people were saying no much more broadly, perhaps, to the to the political class and to political mm. elites. And it was using it as an opportunity to say no to the government. Yes. To return to that quote of Schmidt that, that you opened with and which my piece opens with, he talks about how a people doesn't exercise power, but what a people can do is to offer what he calls acclamation or to deny acclamation. So that there becomes a kind of binary 
question of, of democracy. Democracy becomes a, a binary choice between yay or nay, between approval and disapproval. And the referendum, most, most referendums are questions of, of yes or no, broadly speaking, or in, in that instance, it was remain or leave. And the purpose of the people in a, in a referendum such as that is not to contribute to some sort of deliberation or to uh, increase understanding or to change the stakes involved or to somehow alter the set of possibilities that are on the table, but merely to select A or B, uh, remain or leave, for or anti, effectively. And that has an extraordinary clarity around it as a type of political voice. It produces something which is beautifully uh, unambiguous in terms of its uh, results, and that has a, a great appeal in comparison to the kind of quagmire that is often associated with forms of parliamentary democracy or or, or forms of uh, representative democracy. But it also leaves the question of what did this decision actually mean and how will it actually be enacted and what are its consequences? All of that follows so that you get a very, very clear decision and there's a certain... There's, there's something rather uh, impressive about that. And someone like Schmidt, this was something which was far superior to the forms of endless talking and deliberation that go on within liberal democracies, but that it also leaves a huge amount to still be sorted out. And that was the, the another point that I make in my in my piece, is that if we get too seduced by a politics of, of for or against, we also really underestimate all of the other types of ambivalences and ambiguities that then have to be have to be addressed. Yes, and that moment of clarity in the in, in voting then that leads to a lot more obscurity and mess. But you could see that again in the in the last general election, that the Tories essentially stood on get Brexit done. And that clarity compared to Labour's sort of throwing out a new policy every day. Yeah, I mean that was uh, that was a um it was a political opportunity that was there because in some ways, the, the three years that followed the Brexit referendum from 20, summer 2016 through to summer 2019 only confirmed many um, people's worst fears about the quagmire of parliamentary liberalism. And that by positioning himself as someone who was going to kind of blast through all of that um, by confronting the judiciary and confronting parliament and so on, and then going back to the people in, in search of another very simple affirmation or acclamation, a simple affirmation of that slogan, get Brexit done, there wasn't even any necessity for any other policies, really. And so in that sense, what Johnson did very effectively was to effectively turn that into a second referendum, and really ended up positioning uh, everybody else as wanting a third referendum <laughs> saying that this is the this is the second referendum um vote if you voted leave last time you've got to vote tory this time and um all of those other people simply want to carry on this infernal uh, deliberative process with with more discussions more debates more referendums um and so on if that's the kind of politics you like then you can vote for one of the other parties but if you want the clarity of a very simple affirmation or a very simple acclamation then then that's what voting for for the conservative party will mean in in, in the december uh, 2019 election it was another very powerful critique of, of parliamentarianism i mean a lot of this has come about as you argue, because of with the internet and the way, particularly social media on the internet work, and the way that we interact with websites like Facebook and Reddit, mm. and you like or dislike, or although or often you can't dislike, and this idea of um, you're given a binary choice, and mm. and we like the simplicity of that. Yeah, I mean, so in, in the piece, I I um, tell a very brief history of the techniques and the technologies that seek to capture what the public thinks. And it was not an entirely a coincidence that around about the time that Schmidt was writing in the 1920s and 1930s was also the time when the capacity to detect what the public thinks about X was really developing very rapidly. First with the with the birth of representative sampling in surveys, which allowed social scientists and market research and so on to go out and say, you know, what do you think of this washing powder? Yes or no? 
what do you think of this particular policy, good or bad, um, or, you know, perhaps agree, disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree. These are the sorts of questions that uh, have been part and parcel of the polling industry since the 1930s. And then there were also techniques and technologies such as focus groups and other uh, instruments, which were ways of trying to kind of find out what people thought about something. But I think the, the, the reason I thought it was worth going back to some of that before talking about the internet and social media is that much of the time, um, what social media platforms are doing is decentralizing a similar set of questions. Because what polling companies have done since their origins is not to engage people in a, in a discussion or to really sort of necessarily kind of find out about their their interests and needs. Of course, there are all sorts of things that surveys can be used for. But the, the crucial questions that get asked are, how do you feel about this? Are, are you in favour of this? Or are you against this? This was a time back in the 20s and 30s when psychologists were becoming very interested in the whole idea of attitudes, which is that you have an attitude towards something, which often could something that can be measured in certain ways, but it might be a positive attitude, it might be a negative attitude, but it's something where you kind of are reacting to a product or a policy or an institution and so on. And much of the time when we're using social media, we are in a similar position as the respondents of a of an opinion polling survey because we see a particular image or a song or a joke or whatever it might be and we if we instantly like it then we click like or if we instantly dislike it we either just sort of delete it or ignore it or uh, we might click the unlike button or the down voting button on, on reddit but we are in acting in this kind of plebiscitary mold uh, that i'm talking about in the piece um, because we are really offering our thumbs up and our thumbs down to things the whole time. I mean, this is something which, you know, we see this increasingly around us with, if you're in the um, check-in queue at an airport or in a cafe at the British Library or in a um, public toilet, you might see one of those interfaces which has a green smiley face or a red frowny face, which basically is sort of, you know, How's this experience for you going right now? Is it a, you know, is it pro or is it is it is it plus or negative? You know, this is the sort of the, the nature of real time feedback that we're constantly being invited to provide about experiences as as we're having them. And there is a um, I think this is partly a symptom of the overabundance of information and experiences that we are being um, provided with in the in the digital age, where when you're using platforms of various kinds, there's far more that you could potentially be attending to than you than you can concentrate on. And therefore, what you're doing much of the time is simply deciding what you want to kind of prioritize, what you want to focus on, what you want to kind of sideline or, or eliminate. Um, and that is a, a type of sort of subjectivity or type of consciousness that has become very prevalent in, in the digital age, but which I think we can trace back to that moment in the 20s and 30s with the birth of things like polling and, and market research. And it's about competing for attention as well, isn't it? It's about politicians and and manufacturers and companies competing for for consumers attention yes there is always the, the a question that again goes back to the origins of of market research and and scientific advertising during the the period of the 1920s and 30s which is needing to not just simply kind of guess what is going to hold consumers' interest and, and attention, but to somehow get some kind of feedback so as that things can be constantly sort of tweaked and geared towards them. I mean, if you want to take this to its ultimate end, the, the, the sort of, you know, obviously there are these platforms like Netflix, which are constantly trying to kind of calculate what every individual user uh, most wants and most likes and companies such as Amazon that particularly with the help of uh, these um, audio um, devices in homes such as Amazon and uh, Alexa and so on are trying to basically work out what you want before you've even worked it out yourself um, potentially so that they could actually start not just advertise things to you but there are have even been experiments in what they call predictive shopping which is you know maybe you could just simply sort of things could just simply arrive in people's homes and they go oh yes I actually do want this as a sort of <laughs> pleasant surprise um, and so that's the sort of destination of this rationality is to actually effectively silence people that if their voice can be divined as as perfectly as as possible they effectively become something almost like i i, I think i can't remember who it was the, i saw a media scholar recently and apologies if they're listening and uh, it was them but uh, talking about um 
uh, placentine placentine media, which um, is the the idea of a of a of a type of media that that like the placenta can sort of already can be in constant sort of relationship of feedback with the well in that instance the fetus of constantly being able to provide what is wanted and needed without there needing to be any type of kind of communication or at least any type of verbal conscious communication because there is a kind of constant sort of interaction that is constantly feeding the what is needed at that moment and that is what a lot of these platforms are how effectively they, they, they treat us as like these kind of fetuses who don't really need uh, or, or don't have the capability to to provide conscious voice and constantly leaving a, a trail of various data and, and, and likes and dislikes uh, which can be aggregated into some kind of evidence of of desires and do you think that that denial of voice through those things could contribute to that when we do when people do react to things they re- seem to react so strongly that the violence of their loving something on the internet or or hating something could be because we're offered so much apparent choice and so little real choice that the the expressions of of favor or disfavor become sort of proportionally violenced to the to the sense of being well I suppose the, I mean, in some ways, the, one of the questions that these platforms constantly pose is, do you like this or do you not like this? And the evidence that you like it or you don't like it is through a type of reaction. And that reaction might be one that you have some sort of control over, which is to kind of click a like button. Or it might be a reaction that you have no control over, which is simply like the, the or no conscious control over, which is simply the speed with which you pass over it or the speed with which you swipe it or what you go on to look at immediately afterwards, all of which is is data about what your what your views and preferences are. But that is something which in some ways precedes any kind of discussion of its of its merits if you like so i mean this is something which i suppose that the tabloids have and maybe not just the tabloids maybe it's something which all lots of mass media has specialized in for years but if you think about the i mean the way the tabloids work uh, have worked over some some of the most kind of hot button issues over the last 50 years or so has been to um, provide extremely kind of graphic photographs of particular Topics such as that the that the reaction on on something like some of these sort of most divisive and potentially uh, exploitable political issues such as migration that a report about migration and, and migration policy if it's accompanied by a, a photograph of something that immediately elicits a certain type of of reaction um, an emotional reaction then doesn't really matter what the the, the, the kind of lengthy report actually includes already someone is reading it with a certain type of eye and with a certain type of, of judgment as to what they already think about what they're they're reading they already uh, are fairly clear about what their view is going to be as they then uh, so encounter various information and, and facts and details about it even if they even do that and you see this the whole time on on social media if you use platforms such as twitter um I mean, the the sheer quantity of information means that often people have already become angered by a uh, article in a newspaper simply because someone has cropped uh, the headline or a particular line from it, or they've cropped a particular line and accompanied it next to a particular photograph, and so on. So the 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 way to use these these platforms effectively and to exploit their potential is precisely to work out the best ways of, of circumventing or, or accelerating the, the the shift towards a reaction, if you like. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I use Twitter um, too much, as many most Twitter users probably think they use it too much. Sometimes it's funny, you follow, um, I mean, I, I follow a couple of newspapers on, on Twitter, and sometimes something will kind of crop up in my in my timeline, and something from the from a newspaper such as the Financial Times saying, you know, there's something some fairly kind of dreary news about i don't know whatever something to do with economic policy or something which isn't in itself very remarkable my initial reaction is why would you tweet that that's a bit boring as if it's sort of like you know that's just that's simply a set of facts Uh, that hasn't provoked any kind of reaction in me i'm not quite sure that that's a sort of rather sort of there's something rather kind of it can look very banal to simply report news in in a medium that is um, primarily geared towards provoking reaction of course it didn't it didn't begin with the internet which was partly what my partly what my piece is about is about the uh what what does politics look like once the provocation of of reaction 
positive or negative, precedes the slow work of excavation and, and research and reporting and administration of, of whatever kind of decisions have been taken. And one curious effect is that, as you say, that one effect on Instagram that the, and many other platforms, there's this a tendency to homogenize, that the pursuit of likes in some platforms in some areas ends up with everyone looking increasingly the same or it can lead to an extreme polarization and they've sort of shown this on youtube that you're only ever six clicks away from some extreme sort of nazi content because the way the algorithms work you either have this homogenizing effect or these vicious these vicious cycles that take you take you to the extreme well i suppose what these platforms do is in in a way what they do is to combine some of the properties of financial markets with some of the properties of of tabloid newspapers which is a fairly damning assessment if you think about what what those two institutions have have, have contributed over, over the last 40 50 years but in the sense that they have some of the properties of tabloid newspapers of the sort that I've I've already mentioned which is that the the expert um use of of photographic imagery alongside short chunks of text but they also have some of the aspects of financial markets in the sense that they have bubble effects critics of financial markets, I suppose most famously Keynes, for a long time have noticed that one of the problems with markets such as stock markets is that if everybody is buying a particular stock, it doesn't matter how useless it might be or or how how unprofitable it might be, um, but it becomes actually rational to buy it as well because you can see that it's going to grow in value because you can see that there's a kind of momentum building behind it. And equally, I suppose, what happens in a, in a social media platform is that if it becomes clear that um, certain things are gaining likes, whether consciously or otherwise, then th- there is an incentive to start mimicking that particular type of activity uh, or particular type of content or, or statement or appearance or whatever it might be. And so just as you had a dot-com boom or bubble where stocks were, were were shooting up in value in relation to uh, early internet startups in the late 1990s, regardless of whether they had any plan to ever be profitable. Equally, you can see things on, on platforms such as Instagram and, and Twitter and elsewhere where certain types of behavior start to accumulate, have a sort of, you know, there's a kind of bubble-like effect where people start to conform to certain types of expectations because that's what is considered to be likable in that particular area. But of course, that is means that um, you can also have multiple different bubbles of, of consumer taste going on alongside one another. And one of the aspects of that, which as you mentioned, is that things which might be considered to be, well, extreme relative to, to some idea of, of, of mainstream society or average tastes or, or a typical consumer or typical voter can acquire a supportive community in these sorts of uh, environments. And therefore, extreme ideologies can become normalized within their own types of separate populations of users. And in that sense, they can also start to acquire a kind of momentum in the same way that a a type of financial bubble does, because there is a sort of, I suppose, a a kind of herd effect, which protects people from uh, a sense of the judgment that might otherwise accompany adopting an extreme um, stance in relation to broader publics of, of various kinds. But to get back to the idea of the way that this has affected, sort of off the internet has affected politics capital p politics at large the idea of 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 factionalism and the friend enemy distinction and that everything is whether you like something you don't like it and it all comes down to which side are you on and it's not about the ideas and it's not about what you think is best or or what you believe but simply which team you're on it's it's faction that politics has become reduced to factionalism yeah, I mean, there's there's factions and there's factions. I mean, the the question of factions has been a problem of of modern politics for hundreds of years. I mean, this was something that the um, you know James Madison, one of the American founding fathers, was was very concerned about factions. And um, so, I think that the the question of some of the sort of dangers posed to um, liberal democracy uh, involving in, in t- including the you know the threat of tyrannical majorities as well these are things that have, have preoccupied liberals since the enlightenment but i think that what we're talking about more and what my piece is about is about a specific 
phenomenon that is the only term for it really is culture war, which is a bit of an unfortunate term because as soon as you start to use the term, you're sort of slightly kind of uh, enforcing or you're you're perpetuating a, a problem in some ways. But um, what the term basically alludes to is that when it comes to matters of cultural values by which people mean questions of personal views about things like lifestyle, tradition, I suppose some of the kind of most hot button issues of the of since the 1960s concerning matters of sexuality and of, of private lives and the status of the family, which have been uh, particularly in the United States, have been so divisive uh, in that time. Also, mapping in particularly in the United States onto divisions over the uh, whether or not someone's been to university or not, which of course universities are constantly being dragged into these sorts of conflicts increasingly in the, in the UK at the moment as well, that people who have got degrees hold one set of views about um, the basic values of, uh, of morality and of uh, uh, cultural traditions, which is different from those who did not go to university. Now, this is not simply a question of, of factionalism, because this often comes down to uh, forms of of cultural identification. This isn't just simply about um, people holding different views that then need to somehow get funneled into the democratic arena via political parties and elections and so on. But it is potentially conflicting views about what the common identity on which society is grounded consists, and that these views might not be reconcilable in certain ways. That's why people resort to the metaphor of war, is that it's not something that is considered to be a matter that can be worked through via deliberation, because it begins with some type of much more base identification, which is cultural in the sense that it's about who do I like and who do I dislike? It is a matter of a matter of taste in that way, which is partly why I think it's interesting to think it bring it back to this the fact that it also has a common origin in in in, in certain moments in the development of consumer society and uh, uh, the relationships to consumer research that I talk a bit about in the piece, because it is about partly of of, of who do I consider myself to be in that sense is I suppose an existential question as much as a, as a cultural question. Who do I consider myself to be? Well, I know. Who I consider myself to be because I know what other people I consider myself to, to, to be part of or, or to identify with. And my political views and my political, the arguments that I will make about anything, whether it be to do with um, history or monuments or things like Brexit, are derivative of that more primary map question of who do I consider myself to be and who do I consider myself to ally with. And that means that those arguments are really just simply kind of outgrowths or side effects of something that precedes debate and precedes argument and speech, because it starts with a question of, of a matter of what potentially, I suppose, for someone like Schmidt, you could say is a, is a decision, because do I want to be, do I decide that I'm going to be a Remainer or do I decide that I'm going to be a Lever? Of course, it's not really a simply a matter of decision. In some ways, it so often about what sort of family you've been born into and what sort of culture one simply inherits from from one's parents and in that sense we don't even have a have a decision about it much of the time but this is a threat to liberal ideas of democracy because it makes that question of existential identification is the foundation of political difference and the political differences then simply are a kind of acting out or a performance of some prior act of or moment of identification. And that turns the, the democratic arena simply into a kind of a theatre in which sides play something out. And that's when it starts to turn into something more like, and it's, you know, more benevolent, something more like football, because it's about how the sides sort of playing out against each other. And I mean, a lot of, you know, particularly a, a platform like Twitter, is there's a lot of this sort of thing goes on of, of a kind of jousting or YouTube debates, which people particularly enjoy of watching someone like Jordan Peterson kind of go head to head against um, some kind of uh, ideological adversary. It turns the public sphere into something more like a kind of gladiatorial battleground, but no resolution to anything can ever happen. And nor does anyone want it to happen because you wouldn't want 
at the end of a, of a football match between Chelsea and Manchester United, you wouldn't want at the end of it those teams to no longer be those teams. Uh, less still would you want those teams to have somehow sort of uh, agreed to kind of start to cooperate in some, in some venture. So that, I think, is the, the nature of the problem. Yes, and you wouldn't expect the losing fans to go, oh, well, you guys won, so we're going to support you now. I mean, that would always right, exactly. happen. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's a sense in which Prime Minister's questions has been that kind of theatre of opposition forever. I suppose that's right. I mean, I, I mean, and and again, I mean, this is partly to do with the status of the, the role of media in this sort of thing. I don't know whether it was ever proven to be actually the case, but uh, Jeremy Corbyn, it, it was it was suspected that when Corbyn was leader of the opposition, he was using Prime Minister's questions specifically to try and generate chunks of video content that could then be used on the Labour Party's social media feeds. And certainly, I mean, and this is something which um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has also been credited or accused, depending on what you think of this kind of uh, behaviour, with using Congress in a way of, 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 of very cleverly. I mean, no one sits there watching endless hours of congressional debates. But if someone can make a type of speech that confronts people in a certain way, she did it with Mark Zuckerberg, and she did it in relation to um, lobbying practices, that you can actually use these theatres to sort of generate a type of content that will uh, build support amongst one's own supporters in social media. So and the televisation of, of Prime Minister's questions no doubt added to that sense of a kind of amphitheatre. It could potentially have, have been used differently in the past in the sense that it's possible to imagine it more as a, as a holding to account or, or, or an effort to try and inject some kind of transparency or, or, or to uh, there are other sort of potential justifications for that sort of thing. But it's certainly the case that, of course, you know, the, the, the image of a of a of a debating chamber and something like the Oxford Union Society, which of course, people like um, Boris Johnson was was once the president of. These are spaces which go back to the kind of heyday of classical liberalism of the 19th century, of spaces where the ability to argue uh, to, to, to argue successfully for something matters more than what that thing actually is, um, because actually argument is a uh, in, in these kind of combative winner loser type. Um, situations is, is is it becomes a kind of skill all of its own, but it also generates a sort of you know potentially turns public argument into you know like if, if anyone's read Ben Lerner's most recent book, uh, the Topeka School, um, it's about there's all these kind of debates, discussions of competitive debating, which leads eventually to a kind of complete nonsense of of, of the ability to kind of flatten an opponent opponent without actually saying anything of any without any any, any kind of meaning in it. Yeah, and that question. I mean, again, I mean, it's an older thing, the, the idea of journalistic balance, that if you have someone on your programme talking about climate change or or vaccines, I mean, to put, to put two sort of slightly unfair one-sided things, but you have, you have to have someone on that, you have to have a climate change denier in order to provide balance. I mean, that's older than, that's older than the internet and all these things. So, and that can be, has been a real problem, the way that the BBC feels we've we've got a climate scientist on we therefore have to have a climate denier to provide balance yeah i mean that's um i mean climate is the is the is one of the classic cases the other one was i mean one of the earliest examples of this that that's been um uh, written about at some length was research on the connection between smoking and, and lung cancer where effectively you know what the what the tobacco lobby did and this goes the whole way back i think to the 1950s was not to sort of try and undermine the quality of the science that was emerging that suggested this causal connection, but simply to start to release rival science that kind of offered a kind of balancing view to it. And this was also something that what someone like Philip Murawski and, and, and others who've written about this sort of thing called junk science, where you don't take on what you consider to be the, the this sort of, from a commercial perspective threatening consensus that's looming you simply try and break the consensus by offering a, a dissenting view and you have to find someone who looks sufficiently like a scientist to to help you do that and um you see this you know you see this around lots of lots of issues and it's very difficult obviously in a in an era of declining respect for for authorities of various kinds including the authority of experts potentially although i think that the sort of evidence is that trust in experts has not fallen substantially over the last 40 years but perhaps there's a kind of declining respect for for political authorities after the 1960s and particularly for for journalists themselves um that in a society of without deference and a society that that doesn't necessarily believe that just because someone 
got a suit on and is on TV or in the newspaper that they know what they're talking about. It's very difficult for editors and producers to stick to some, you know, to doing what the seeming experts or authorities or elites tell them is the correct line when they've got someone um, shouting in their other ear saying, well, you're just kind of shutting me down and you're closing me out and so on. So this is kind of how a lot of the so-called populist movements have also worked is to, you know, position themselves as offering a dissenting voice to the mainstream media or the mainstream of politics, mainstream political parties, where effectively that dissenting voice exists purely to be a dissenting voice. It doesn't necessarily have anything that that, that is particularly interested in in, in kind of norms of validity or, or, or of evidence, but that it it plays to the sense that, that dissent is a good in and of itself and therefore must be allowed to be heard. And that's something which a lot of free speech activists like Toby Young advanced that kind of argument. And it's something that a lot of um, people who are a mixture of, I suppose, neoconservatives and those who are who who stand up for the right of of scientists to ask um, uh, politically charged um, and divisive cultural questions concerning matters of of gender and race and so on, and, and particularly uh, associated with the um, online magazine Quillette. This is a kind of whole body of intellectuals and ideologues who have a sort of strange kind of often rather paradoxical combination of of, of defence of the authority of Western science, as they would propose it, uh, mixed with a um, uh, a dogmatic belief that dissent and competition between different views is a good in and of itself, and that's a this this is often expressed in the idea of a marketplace of ideas, and that means that even if there is a consensus and that consensus is some is functioning quite effectively, that it needs to be broken purely um, on principle. That's true. Although I mean, many of those, I mean, someone like Toby Young, I guess, in a sense, his performance of dissent is very much in 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 defense of preserving a situation which in which he has a lot of a lot of privilege i mean there's a sense it's kind of it's presenting himself as a dissenter in all these different ways but it's also in defense of a status quo that favors him yeah clearly there's there are sort of self-interested and strategic aspects to the to the free speech movement and you know it's and i, I think that, that free speech needs to be in 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 I mean, I suppose, yeah, because, yeah. and he he now has this free speech union, which is um, a kind of campaigning group against uh, what it perceives to be cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, I mean, this has been sort of debated a lot recently, but it's. Um, I think the the I suppose the the point I want to make about that mentality is that it it believes in combat in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily, which is how it in some ways connects back to the issues that we're discussing, the issues in my article, is that it wants there to be sides to everything. It can't imagine that there might be issues on which there aren't sides, that the, the whole idea of sides might actually not be a very helpful way to understand things like the past or the future of climate or the consequences of Brexit or whatever it might be. Now, I, I mean, that that doesn't mean necessarily that we have to simply listen to uh, economists or a, or a particularly narrow group of historians or, or or even that we have to listen exclusively to climate scientists on the topic of climate because, of course, there are lots of different voices that deserve to be heard on all of these sorts of things. But that if difference and plurality can only be seen in terms of sides, then you're never going to actually learn very much because you have to constantly go back and, and reimpose the, the, the sort of... The, the, there's more concern with um, enforcing the, the, the opposition of the, of, the, of the perspectives than there is in actually interrogating what they even happen to be able to offer to understanding of, of the issues concerned. So that, in that sense, there's not even the kind of aspiration to anything like knowledge or understanding, let alone anything like consensus, which might be a rather sort of perhaps a, a utopian liberal uh, aspiration. But on certain issues, you know, when we think about things like climate change and so on, it's uh, the the willingness to thwart consensus, purely to thwart consensus, is potentially quite uh, dangerous. Yeah, and it can make productive action quite difficult because of the idea we have some, we, we have to work out what to do next. And that's true of Brexit as well, that the kind of, well, what, this is where we are. How do we work out how to proceed? And if everyone, it still always breaks down to which side are you on, then that, that becomes impossible. 
I mean, the BBC did learn a, a, a difficult lesson and apologise. I think when they had they 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 had Nigel Lawson on. I think it was the Today program, who is a, a climate change skeptic, offering it's, so the, to call him a skeptic is is generous. I mean, he's a yeah a denier. Is it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I they, they, I mean, I'm trying to sort of. I can't remember exactly how he how he describes himself, but. But anyway, the point was that they they later revisited some of their um, their editorial policies when it came to the discussion of climate change, and that is, of course, a sort of test case, really, of of to what extent are you willing to to suspend this opposition for its own sake? Yeah, and as you say, one of the things that it comes down to that the binary question of guilt or innocence, and the obsession with sort of finding other people guilty, and that the the factionalism is is. So much about that. Yeah. Funnily enough, after my piece came out, within a few days, there'd been a few examples of debates of colonial and imperial history and and slavery, which really kind of demonstrated some of what my piece was about quite quite well. One was there was a, a moral maze on the topic of of history and imperialism, which really provoked quite a lot of unhappiness amongst various historians of empire. And because it basically turned the question of the nature of the past into a sort of question of good or bad, basically, you know, was empire good or was empire bad? And of course, the moral maze, I mean, the, the, the very format of the moral maze, which, you know, you can love it or hate it, and a lot of people hate it. But it's, a, you know, of course, the format itself, you know, is, is a sort of, it's a trial, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to try and kind of prove a, a very sort of strong moral case and and it either gets sort of shot down or not sort of thing but the idea that 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 history is now something in which we have to sort of deal with whether these people were good or bad is a sort of particularly depressing instance of how these forms of polarized cultural identifications really impoverish all of us i think i mean it doesn't seem to me that using the adjective, using morally loaded language, whether good or bad, to discuss the past actually does very much a lot of the time to help you understand it. I mean, the Second World War is taught uh, a great deal in schools, but I don't think it I don't think it helps anyone to understand national socialism, to constantly inject the language that that it was bad that these people that this was that this was sort of you know a, a morally um, repugnant set of institutions and policies. The the reason for for trying to understand it and and learn about it and to teach it is precisely considered because it's considered to have certain moral implications, but they don't need to be spelt out the entire time. What's happened, I think, when it comes to a lot of debates about empire is, and I think that many often the time it's those on the right that are that are pushing this is that there is very quickly in the media, there is an argument that historians in universities uh, who are considered to be, you know, often they might even get dismissed as sort of being woke or, or, or politically correct, whatever it might be, are trying to kind of harm this great country by, by writing and, and, and reporting about particular uh, events that took place over the last 400 years or so. And that therefore we need to somehow kind of turn what might be or might have been a, a, a discussion of the past and about a discussion of evidence and a, an exploration of aspects of history that have not really been part of how this country has understood itself or been willing to discuss itself at all over, over its recent history. But that it has to become a question of what type of moral or cultural political agenda uh, universities have and historians have. And then it becomes into, uh, uh, you get these projects such as Nigel Bigger, who's a theologian at um, Cambridge University, who has got this project to to try and kind of look at the positive aspects of the British Empire. So it all becomes about, is the British Empire good or is the British Empire bad? And that this discussion which involves well, where where do you want to stand? Whose side are you going to be on in, in the moral maze? Which, who are you going to sort of upvote and downvote? And, and of course, it all then gets kind of superimposed onto existing divides, such as the divide over remain and leave, and the divide over graduates and non-graduates, and all of these kind of what are becoming incredibly tedious forms of polarization. Then go and get imposed onto some of these absolutely crucial questions about the status of Britain in the world, uh, the, the relationship of Britain to its former colonies and uh, what that means for questions of, of politics and migration and identity today, all of these sorts of discussions that, that could and should be happening, but 
they shouldn't be uh, funneled via these infantile um, forms of, of sort of for and against and, and the sorts of things which, as I argue in the piece, I think the right has been extremely quick to start posing questions about, so does this mean you think that Britain is a bad country and that you're against your country and you hate Britain? Well, actually, that means that most people we can show from this particular opinion poll actually love their country. And that means that you are in the minority and therefore your particular view doesn't count. And you saw people like Nick Timothy, uh, Theresa May's former advisor on Twitter, um, complaining about the fact that various historians had said that citizenship questions about Britain's history and the, in the citizenship test were simply inaccurate when it came to certain aspects concerning Britain's past. And Nick Timothy immediately sort of resorted to saying, well, actually, I think you'll find that the majority of people in this country rather like Britain, and they don't want to have their beliefs and their identities interfered with by a bunch of historians in all of these kind of woke universities. I mean, it's just kind of a moronic way for any type of uh, expansion of our of our historical and geographic horizons and our understanding of, of who we are and, and where we've come from. This is completely kind of disastrous, but I think it's deliberately disastrous because it, it shuts down the possibility of a of a better type of public discourse from, from filling that kind of space because immediately uh, you're in a discussion about different sides. This week as well that Tom Cotton in the US has written something saying that slavery was good because... It's the modern United States was born out of it. So we couldn't have America if we hadn't had slavery. Therefore, slavery was good. Yeah. And then, of course, everyone, you know, understandably is is reacting to that piece rather than to actually discussing things that they might otherwise be discussing. And I think that this is the this is the problem. And it's actually a sort of it's it's actually blocking the possibility of historical insight and historical knowledge. And I think, as I say, I think it's doing that quite deliberately because it's it's debarring the possibility of a, of, a, of a deeper understanding. Do you see a way out of this? Well, I mean, I think that um, when you think about the way digital platforms work, they are designed to reinforce some of these sorts of behaviours and some of these types of political logics and rather kind of these sort of political pathologies. And um, the best book I know about the, the, the pathologies of social media is Richard Seymour's The Twittering Machine. And one of the things which I, I, I find particularly appealing and helpful about that, which also relates to my piece, is that each chapter of the book is titled We Are All Trolls or We Are All Celebrities. It starts from the premise that none of us is completely immune to, to all of this. Immediately that prevents the sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I talk at the end of my piece about this type of, desperation for for there to be scapegoats or for there to be others who have started the the conflict there's always someone somewhere else is the cause of of conflict and i'm innocent and uh, but others have have initiated things and i think that we're all in some ways trapped inside certain aspects of this kind of media political complex today uh, and i think that recognizing that is, is is healthy but i suppose ultimately one has to have some faith in education as being something that doesn't get channeled via kind of the sharing and the acclamation of photography, that things can be discussed in a classroom, in a university, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a book uh, that don't require people to immediately react with a thumb up or a thumb down in order for them, for their, for them to be heard and for them to be sat with patiently and understood, even if that some of that is, is, is an uncomfortable process, because that's the only alternative. The only alternative to a public debate in which people are constantly offering their approval or disapproval as, as soon as anyone else has opened their mouth is one in which people have to sit and, and listen sometimes and try and kind of wait for understanding to arise, to have some kind of patience, a kind of delayed gratification, I suppose. And I think that that is what education potentially offers, although there are forces pushing education in, you know, to, in the, towards a kind of platform logic as well. So, I mean, you know, we have to be wary of that. But I think that it's quite difficult to think in these terms, given the way in which universities have themselves been dragged into the, to the so-called culture war. And then, of course, the internet in the 90s, there was a utopian idea of it that it was a place where you could have these discussions with anyone and it didn't matter who you were or which side you were on. And in a sense, sort of the early internet, perhaps there seemed to be more possibility for that kind of discussion. And it's sort of with the more recent rise of, of social media platforms where it's all about clicking on likes. Yeah, 
I mean, there was there were various things people misunderstood about the early internet. I suppose first of all that the that the early users had did have more in common than people realised because they were all the first thing they all had in common was that they were all internet users. So that was that in itself already gave them something that they held in common, and probably that wasn't understood properly. I think that there was also a sort of techno utopianism or, or a sort of techno reductionism of thinking that this was like the you know thinking that the printing press was this emancipatory invention without thinking about the institutions that grew up around the printing press which were the publishers and the editors and the the norms of how the printing press got used and i think that possibly there was uh, inadequate understanding that a lot of how consensus arise uh, can can arise in a liberal society is as much to do with the norms of the human beings who do the publishing as it is of of the fact that sort of truth kind of arises spontaneously from the fact that you know a, a scientific paper gets kind of just published and is immediately recognized as being true well no i mean a lot of you know science studies and, and others have, have shown how actually the the ability to establish a particular consensus around something is a is a very social and political process and it helps if it's a relatively restricted one as well that's the the, the awkward truth about how scientific facts get made and developed and i think that the internet looking back it, the fact that the internet liberated people from those norms of consensus formation and in that sense they liberated people from the constraints of of common sense of a mainstream in a sense they liberated people from the mainstream media from mainstream politics from all forms of, of mainstream and uh, offered an endless plurality of streams, a, a sort of a, a, an infinity of streams rather than there being a, a mainstream th- through which things had to pass. And, and that freedom um, shouldn't be underestimated because it had all sorts of benefits of, of, of various kinds. But it also has uh, nevertheless turned politics and culture far more into something like the, the kind of financial market that I was talking about earlier, where effectively, because people can't all be expected to sort of search through billions upon billions of items of content, of songs, of images, of, of jokes, of people, of ideas, and so on, effectively, it then becomes more like a financial market, where something that has already accumulated quite a lot of momentum and quite a lot of support becomes something that you become more inclined to kind of invest your attention and your your acclaim in. And bubbles of, of taste build up, but they become, uh, in that sense, closer to this is the, the sort of technical underpinnings of, of what is often, in a rather kind of dismissive way, described as tribalism. William Davis, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You can read William Davis's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Adam Tews on the new Cold War between the US and China, Frances Stoner Saunders on the mystery of her father's suitcase, and one of Adam Bennett's Talking Heads monologues. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen.